Hi, I'm Angela Hood. I'm the founder and CEO of This Way Global, and you are here joining us at Diversity Cafe. Diversity Cafe was founded on the fact that during COVID, people were not getting together in cafes any longer. Uh, we were all, unfortunately, we're all having to stay huddled up in our home. And what we realized is there was conversations that needed to be had that were not being had. And so we started inviting guests on uh, and our guest today is Natalie Egan. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are a fascinating individual with a fascinating, uh, I will say, history. And I would say the most unique thing about you is your willingness to talk openly about it and help the rest of us figure things out. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Natalie Egan. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Uh, and I'm the CEO and founder of Translator Inc., uh, where we build diversity, equity, inclusion, training and analytics software for corporations, schools and nonprofits. And I can tell you more about that later if it comes up. Um, but um, yeah, I'm excited to be here and share more of my background and my story and you know, just appreciate the opportunity to represent Angela. So thank you. All right. Awesome. So great to have you. Uh, I learned about your story uh, through a colleague of mine who read a, a feature story in Elle magazine. And if you can tell us a little bit about when that was um, out and then what was the response to the story? And then we'll talk about the highlights from that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm mean, just, first of all, like I, uh, the L article was probably the biggest sort of platform that our story had been told on, you know, or we, there's some organic, you know, PR hits and, um, you know, people that uh, told our story prior, but I never really, just to be honest, I'd never really liked, it. Like, I don't like reading about what people write. Um, and actually, it was one of the first articles that I really thought was like, wow, they really, really did a good job. Um, so, you know, I'm happy that that's how we got connected. Um, but uh, yeah, that story came out um, about six months ago at this point. Um, it was a full feature. It was in print, too, which was pretty cool. Um, and it was like top recommended readings for Apple News. So uh, Apple News is really what caused the, the distribution of that to go far beyond the reach of the traditional L reader. Um, so it was getting into the hands of, you know, all kinds of folks uh, really. So that was really cool. Um, it got us a lot of this exposure. Uh, and I can tell you more about some of what that exposure is leading to. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an in-depth story of my life. Um, you know, it's um, kind of the title of the article is called Corporate Transition. Um, and I love that. I mean, just when I first saw the title, when it finally went to print, I was like, oh, that's like a cool title um, because it really is telling the story of, a, you know, a, a, a tech CEO, a tech startup CEO, um, you know, that was that very publicly transitioned uh, their gender. Uh, that, that's me, by the way. But um, and, and sort of all of the things that went with that, um, you know, and just to kind of give you all some background. You know, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, this is my second major venture capital backed HR tech, what I call change management software business. Um, uh, and I had a, I had another company prior to this and it was prior to my transition. Um, and so I have sort of a unique perspective um, 
you know, on gender and power dynamics in the workplace, in particular, probably from like a leadership, like CEO perspective, because not a lot of folks have have done that. Um, you know, there's plenty of transgender entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, um, and there's and there's a handful of us at very, very senior levels um, like Martine Rothblatt. Um, but all of our experiences, there's so few of us that all of our experiences are so different. And there's, but there's, there's only about 10 of us, as far as we know, that are running venture capital backed uh, tech businesses, uh, which exactly. is an industry. Well, so let me interrupt you for real quick, because I, I don't think there's a number that most people know. So uh, less than 3% of venture capital goes to women. Right. So the it's fact not, that as low as 2%, like that number sounds really high to me because right. I'm like, wow, it's gone up by a third. Right. No, it hasn't really gone up. It's just that they count if there's no. a female in the leadership team. They're trying to get those numbers to go up by it, right? So you're super unique in the fact is a woman CEO of a tech company that you're leading in your VC backed. That's that is unusual in itself. Yeah. But the fact that you have also had the experience in that same type of role as a man is just mind blowing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was never actually a man, but I was presenting to the world as a okay. man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. It's, yeah. There, there's the, the, the numbers get smaller and smaller that, you know, I, there's a handful of us, you know, that are out trans venture backed there's as far as we know there's about 10 of us we actually created a support group for each other so like whenever a new one of us like comes out like we kind of join the group and again there's a difference i want to call out be very specific like i'm talking venture capital backed right there's hundreds thousands of trans entrepreneurs out there that are ceos running businesses but raising institutional venture capital in a high tech environment, there's there's just very few of us, and and even less of us that have done it on both sides. There's a handful of us that you know came out as trans and then started our first business. Um, but yeah, there's there's very few of us, and um, you know, uh, and there's going to be more and more. I mean, like you know, a couple of years ago, I there was there was even less, um, and so it, there's a there's sort. I mean, as you've seen in the magazines, like. You know the trans revolution is on um and so we're coming out and we're not just ceos like obviously we're 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 at all levels of business right like we're we're customer service front end we're retail we're we're vps we're um we're all over the place have trans people are everywhere um it's just we were hiding forever or we were so deeply repressed that we didn't even know who we were which was a little bit more like me like i didn't know so what would you say um, if a person is listening to this and they are leadership or they're in recruitment at a large organization, small organization, really doesn't matter what size, but an employee comes to them and says, just letting you know, I'm, I'm going to be transitioning and I'm going to make this public. What do they say and what things can they do to help support that person? Because I'm sure that that is a very difficult moment in their life and their professional life to be able to say that. I think most people want to be supportive. So what do you say? And like, what questions do you ask? And what are the things you're not supposed to ask? Maybe start with that one, because I think that's what we're most fearful of. Yeah. I mean, so fortunately, the answer to that, like, is pretty simple, right? You you know, you say congratulations, right? Like it's literally a congrat, like, you know, somebody comes out to you, you know, um, you know, in the LGBT community, 
regardless of whether it's trans or lesbian or bi or pan or asexual, like whatever it is that they're disclosing to you, like, you know, as, as part of a coming out, like the first thing you say is congratulations. Um, the second thing you could say is how can I support you? Right. How can I help you? Um, and really put yourself into a position of like listening, right? Like that's, that's the posture that you should take is, you know, it's like, I'm going to listen to this person and tell me what they need and, and just, you know, not necessarily lead them anywhere except for that, like, Hey, how can I help you kind of moment? Um, and, and ultimately, you know, you want to, you know, provide a support system for them lo longer term. Uh, if, you know, if this is your first trans employee or maybe your fifth, you know, always revisiting that process or starting that, what does that look like in your organization? It, you know, it's really, really important so that you're kind of ready for it um, or, or getting better at it. Um, you know, I've seen a lot, a lot of my friends were the first at their companies, right? So they and were the first to transition is what yeah. you mean. And yeah. it, would, it would break the HR system, yeah. you know, like they didn't right. know what to do. Fortunately, there's more and more, you know, kind of playbooks out there now. Um, you know, you can, you, you know, you there's, there's, there's known best practices at this point, but, you know, five, 10 years ago, no one knew what to do. Um, and so fortunately, we're getting a little bit better. Systems are becoming more flexible, you know, not just in the employment space, but like in like healthcare, right? Like, you know, the ability for me to, change my name and gender marker with, you know, Pennsylvania State Department of Transportation was like pretty easy, actually, relatively speaking. I mean, I just brought in a form and they changed it right on the spot without asking questions. And it was amazing. But like, you know, not that long ago, that was really hard. You know, same thing in the workplace. Like, like I know stories where they had to fire the employee and rehire the new employee under the new name because the HR system couldn't handle yeah. the change. So we actually know this to be um, one of the questions that we asked from our uh, audience. We said, you know, what would you like for me to ask? And they said, we just had to go through this. This company had to fire a very well-respected employee and rehire them completely. Yeah. And then the system didn't want to take them because they were at the same address as a person that was just yeah. fired. Yeah, so they said, no, that can't happen. <laughs> Right. And then it gets really messed up because then you get into insurance and like well, all this very complex newness to this. Um, but I think getting ready for it is is really important um, because, you know, kind of go back to the numbers um, or, or bring up numbers. Right. So traditionally, like old school, like, you know, if you rewind back like maybe 10 years ago, the historically accepted numbers was like like the and the, the more like kind of credentialed research said that like about one percent of the population is transgender and that was like 10 years ago yeah that was totally global. Global. That was like 10 years ago like that was like that was the statement about one okay. percent of the population right and you know even that number is big but it everyone especially in the trans community was like that number is way underreported like they don't understand like the, the polling that they did was completely flawed. They were basically polling out transgender people, adults, adults only. So it wasn't including younger generations uh, at all, which by the way, they're where the, the, the younger generations are the ones that are coming out in droves right now. Um, but it was also if the, only for people that were out and the, the amount of repression and op oppression that the trans community is experiencing, like people weren't out. Like if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have been like, 
Like if I, if you asked me that on like a, some sort of poll, I would be like, no. And it wasn't cause I wasn't um, being honest. It's cause I didn't know. I literally actually didn't know. Um, I repressed this, my identity so deeply that I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what it was. I, you know, lived my life, um, you know, according to what everybody else wanted me to be. Like from the very core of my, you know, ex identity and existence as a child, I never had my own identity. So I became what everybody else wanted me to be. And, you know, over time that evolved, but um, I would have had no clue that I was a transgender woman. There were clues now that I look back on, it, I'm like, oh, that's what that was. You know, like these little sort of very, at the time, what I considered very strange things about me, you know, like almost like that I considered like a sickness at the time, because I was like, I don't understand why I want to wear women's clothes. All right. So this is the example that you think in your mind is like, I am drawn to women's clothes. I don't understand it. What age was that? Do you remember that when you first remember? The earliest ages, right? Okay. Like, like age five, I... This, there's this like a story that I used to tell quite a bit, actually, I haven't told in a while, but for, at age five, you know, I snuck into my mom's big walk-in closet, um, you know, and I just, I didn't know why, I was like compelled to go in there. Like, I was like, I have to go in here and try on my mom's clothes. And like, I was scared to death. And like, I thought I sort of like, you know, it was it was just me and my mom in the house. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Okay, so you do have sister? Yes. My younger sister. Oh, she's yeah. unfortunately, she's like, I'm like 5'10". She's like 5'3". So I could never wear her clothes, right. which was really frustrating. But, um, and she was also never very girly, which was even more frustrating. Oh, but, right. um, but I remember sneaking into my mom's closet and I like put on like, you know, what, what you know, we used to call them slips. Yeah. You know, on this like, it, to me, it looked like a blouse or dress because I right. was like, years old. Uh, but it was really silky and it just, I and, I, and then I pulled on these like, thigh high like pantyhose type things and, and kind of stepped into a pair of her shoes. And I remember looking in the mirror and going like, I feel beautiful. Like I felt pretty, I was like, it's this amazing feeling, but my heart was racing and I was like, I'm not supposed to be in here. And you know, what if I get caught? And of course my mom opens the door and there I am. And she, by the way, doesn't even remember this, but I remember it. And like my heart almost stopped. Like I almost, you know, I, I like I, I remember in that moment, like being so scared, like my it was like my my little life, my five year old life was like flashing behind in front of my eyes. I was like, oh, my God, like, what if my my dad finds out? What if my brothers find out? Like, and I remember making a promise to myself at that moment that I would never, ever, ever do anything like that ever again, because I was supposed to be a boy. At the age of five, though. At the age of five. And right. so and then I really struggled with that, like. You know, for the rest, you know, really until I was 38, I just every once in a while I would like have to put on women's clothes just for the satisfaction of doing it. And then I would basically like rip them off and throw them away and feel ashamed. And you wouldn't believe how many clothes I've thrown away. Like it's sad. Well, so for like things like Halloween or parties or whatever, you know, would you, you know, you would not dress like a woman. No, because I didn't want people to know. Because you felt like it would be revealing something. Yeah, yeah. People would be like, "You would enjoy this, like, really too much." <laughs> Actually, I hated Halloween. I, I never like. I used to like for Halloween. My Halloween costume for like a lot of years was a T-shirt that said, "This is my Halloween costume." Okay, interesting. Like, so only you about, this moment where you could be. Um, no, 
yeah. like four years ago. I mean, I've, I've been out since 2016. So, you know, uh, so six years ago, but four years ago, I went to my first real Halloween party and like really did it up. And I dressed as Catwoman. It was like one of the most fun nights of my life. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, come on, all of us want to dress like Catwoman. <laughs> I mean, she is pretty cool. So, all right. So you, so you're five and you're kind of, um, you have an awakening a bit in your, in your brain at least. Um, and then college happens. Anything there where you're like, oh, this was another moment. Yeah. I mean, all through, you know, high school and, and college and in my early professional years, I, I, I would say I struggled. I mean, there was times I struggled more than others. Um, I think um, I think and there was times where I would repress it more than others. Uh, I think in college, I probably repressed it the most because I joined fraternities and like, you know, it was in that sort of like frat culture, um, you know, which is part of the mechanism I was trying to use to repress my identity. And I'm trying to become like these other people. But I also turned to like drugs and alcohol to like disconnect myself from you know, what I was experiencing in my, my day to day, which again, I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a name for it. I just knew that I was pretty miserable unless I was like high or drunk. And, um, and that, you know, and it wasn't like, 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 you know, really serious drugs or anything like that, but it was enough to disconnect me, right. you know, and sort of keep me buzzed and not thinking about who I was supposed to be. But when I was, um, when I got older, like when I was in, when I started working professionally and then ultimately when I started my own business, I think I sort of freed myself up from a lot of the constructs of expectations of what people, you know, wanted of me. So I think I started to explore a little bit more. Um, and, and I used to have to travel to New York City and I actually like hated it because I knew when I went to New York city and spent the night in New York city that like, th like this, and for people that are just listening, I'm pointing to myself, this would come out, you know, inevitably at some point in the night, because it was like, Oh, I'm in this big city. It's like anonymous. Nobody knows me. You know, I can go into this, like, you know, Dwayne Reed pharma, like pharmacy and like buy red nail polish and like, and like go back to my hotel room and like paint my nails. And did that feel like an incredible vacation for you? Like, were you? Yeah, like until the next morning. After you were, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, it was an amazing release. And then the next morning I would wake up and feel ashamed and feel regret. And I was usually pretty hungover too. And like, and I was always worried that like somebody would see like a little bit of the red nail, like chip on my nail or like a little bit of glitter on my eyes and be like, are you wearing, were you wearing mascara last night? Um, and I was always ready with the story. Like if something happened, like if, or even when, if I was at the farm, what if I went into the, to the pharmacy or whatever, and I was buying the nail polish, like, what if I bumped into somebody I knew? Well, then I'd have to have the story ready. So if you think about the mental load that this is all taking for me, you know, it's, or, and for, I mean, really, I'm trying to use me as a, as a way to then think about and magnify that times your workforce, right? Like all of these employees that are potentially repressing their identity. By the way, I didn't finish that thought. So 1% was the number and it's been revised upwards significantly. So the new number that people generally accept is about 3%. I will tell you as, as a member of the community, it's about 5%. 5%. Okay, so, so let me just, I want everyone to really think about this. So a company 
should be looking at their workforce and saying, right now, you probably know about 1%, or maybe you don't even know about 1%. Well, maybe you know about the 1%. A different life on the weekend or whatever. But truthfully, you're looking at 3 to 5% of your workforce is specifically um, in transition of some phase or contemplating transition. What does that percentage represent? So, somewhere on the gender, like, non-conforming, non-binary continuum. Okay. So, which, so it's not necessarily people transitioning from A to B, but it's people that, you know, are, are really, the term would be like, from a DEI perspective, would be like covering, right? They're, they're covering parts of their identity when they work, show up to the workplace. And like you said, when they get home, they switch it up. They become somebody else, right? Like the number of people that we would think of as, it's very feminine women that show up to the workplace and follow the sort of the conforming like like standards, then go home and like, you know, put their hair up in a baseball cap and like put on jeans and a white t-shirt and like drink beers and watch baseball. Like the numbers are very high. Like you don't understand it. And they may not want to transition, but they're much more masculine than we give them credit for. And they might, if they give or given the choice, you know if you really all things equal, they, they might use different pronouns. They right. might show up to work very differently. They might completely cut off all their hair and not wear any makeup at all and maybe prefer to go by a different name, but they don't necessarily like, you know, they, they might like choose a name that's more neutral um, than, you know, just something that might be very feminine. Um, so those numbers are very large uh, incoming freshmen, like colleges are reporting, college and universities are reporting upwards of like 7% of their incoming freshman classes are somewhere on that gender nonconforming continuum, you know, gender fluid, gender non-binary, asexual, um, you know, there's a whole continuum, right? And again, they're not always like transitioning neatly from A to B. They're sort of like, you know, they're, they're using they, them pronouns. Um, so if you think about that number, the magnitude of that number, you just assume that some percentage of your employees are somewhere in there. They may either know it or not. They might be struggling. They may may not be there even there yet. You know, you need to start thinking about policies, programs, uh, benefits. You know, because a lot of times it's not just your employees; it's the it's the families of your employees, right? right? People are making decisions now uh, about where they work. You know, for the you know, for their loved one who is potentially transitioning or non-conforming, you know, and it has everything to do with culture. It's just as simple as like, well, like, could I, could I put a picture of my, my child, you know, not necessarily my son or my daughter, but my child here and, you know, tell people about them, right. Using the, that using intentionally using they, them there, that's about them. Like, can, can I even just talk about that? Let alone, can I have can I have the you know the policies the the insurance in place for me to be able to cover the healthcare related costs of anything that's going on for them their their partner their loved ones you know so that's really important that's table stakes these days and you know and then we also get into like all the nuanced stuff bathrooms and right uh, and you know pronouns and and things like that 
Um, the inclusion and belonging part, I think, has um, had some more emphasis on it. And what you're describing to me is a great example of, it, you know, if I have someone that's in my family or if I'm experiencing something like this, I want to be able to go to the company picnic and introduce this family member and have them be well-received and not have them, I don't understand what you're talking about. And so how do companies become educated properly? Because I do think that there is information, you know, people go to the internet and they think that the information that they find is always accurate, but a lot of times that information is not truly empathetic. Uh, That information may have been produced by someone that doesn't really know hasn't experienced it, doesn't know the nuances of it. So what does a company do if they want to educate their workforce as as we as a society transition? Yeah, um, thank you for asking that. And, you know, sometimes it's 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 everything you just described or and or it might be dated, right? Some of the stuff gets dated. And and I love, you know, you know, we we as a society are transitioning. Like, it, you know, we as human beings are always in transition. Like, I would tell you if you're not in transition, like you're probably already dead, right? So we're already, we're always in some sort of transition, you know, some of us more than others. Um, And I think there's a correlation between like, like happiness and fulfillment and like being able to transition with the times and not hold on to the past and, you know, the way things used to be, because that was easier or it's what you put up with The, the number of, you know, really unhappy parents that I talk to that are like, really fighting against their child's transition is because they couldn't be who they wanted to be, right? Like they had to be what their parents expected them to be. And so to break that construct is, is it's, it's hard for them as parents. I get that. I have empathy for it, but it's like, okay, we have to transition. We have to transition. So, you know, my transition is a transition for you, right? My, like my, you know, my transition was a transition for my family. Um, And so, so yeah, I mean, I think, to get to the to the question, um, you know, there there is a lot of information out there. It's a good place to start the internet for sure, um, but it's not going to solve all your problems, um, you know. And I think you know there's great resources out there on social media in particular. Like there's like thought leaders uh, in the space that are you know helping you know just create representation, telling their stories, like the same way we are right now. Like this is a form of social media in a, in a way and. You know, we're, we've created a platform and we're creating representation. We're sharing the story. So, you know, you got to you got to participate, though. Like you have to actually be part of the conversation. So, you know, I would say your participation matters. Right. So I would say, you know, get involved, lean in, like even if this is uncomfortable for you, like actually I've sort of taken a stance um, that's been part of my transition and evolution as, as a manager. Right. That like when things make me uncomfortable, like lean in to them. Like, don't lean out, like lean in, like ask, why does this make me uncomfortable? Examine it. Right. Like that, that's an indicator that there's something new here that you don't necessarily know about. So I would say like lean into this, even if you don't think you have any transgender employees or non-conforming employees, um, because you probably do. um, And, and this is the kind of thing that, you know, you want to get ahead of like both from a employer perspective, but also like managing like customers, Right. Like all the constituencies, partners, vendors, suppliers, you know, the whole ecosystem. Right. So you kind of have to get up to date on it. There's a there's an imperative there. Um, But, yeah, social media and the general Internet are great places to start. 
Um, and a lot of the principles that I talk about for allyship are a little bit actually pretty universal, right? Like, you know, what applies to the trans community applies more broadly to the LGBT community, which applies more broadly to, you know, the, you know, black, black, brown, like, you know, different races, um, you know, uh, with, you know, just for, you know, all the different the, the, the dimensions of diversity, let's put it that way. Right. So, um, but I would say, you know, first and foremost, like inside your organization, besides participating and getting involved, like, you know, create representation, right? Like, 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 you know, and that's like both at the micro level and the macro level. So like in, in a meeting or on a team, like with a group of decision makers, like, do you have representation of different diverse experiences and backgrounds? Right. Or does everybody look the same? Does everybody sound the same? Does everybody always agree? Did everybody all come from the same college? Like that lack of diversity there is hurting your organization. Right? There's there's tons of studies out there. I don't need to convince you on it, but like McKinsey, Mercer, PwC, like you name it, like diversity wins, right? Like from a business perspective. It drives like, ROI. Absolutely. I mean, and the reason is is because while it's slower, like there's also documentation, like diverse teams move slower but they make better decisions, right. right? And it's also, it's slower to build a diverse team. Like you have to, it's easy to recruit from your network where everybody looks like you, right? Like it's, that's easy. It's hard to find people that don't look like you and connect to those different networks and, and bring them onto the team and give them a voice, right? So it's not just having them there, but it's having them actually be able to speak up in your culture. Um, but I would say representation matters um, and re that representation is going to bring diverse experiences and stories and start to change culture and help create more allyship, um, especially for the trans community. I always tell people, if you want to hire, you know, um, a unique, you know, somebody who thinks differently, like hire a trans person, right? Like, you know, like we think differently by default. So I want to switch to a different topic. Something that you told me the first time we ever talked okay. that I was like, I was made my brain stop for a moment. Okay. So I'm a female founder, uh, CEO, VC backed, right? And I have my own particular things that I think about when I'm entering into a VC conversation or the boardroom or whatever. And you said something to me that I was like, wait, what? So I've always known that people respond to men and women differently. That I mean, that's a no brainer. We all know this. But something you said to me, and I want you to explain the background on it and then explain what you learned is you talked about the space that you took up after you transitioned and how it was different than before you transitioned. Because yeah. it wasn't someone did something to you. It was the what you started to do. And that was the part I was like, what is happening so if you could, if you could share that, because I think this would actually help uh, men and women, regardless of where, you know, where they are in trying to understand transitioning, but also just being men and women just in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would say, and just being people in the world, right. Just like that. Even yeah. That's a little nuance of, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just about being human. Um, so so I, th I think if I remember that, I don't remember the pr conversation per se, but I remember these topics, you yeah. know, so I hopefully uh, guide me if I say the wrong thing, but, um, you know, I think prior to my transition, like I used to 
take up a lot of space, like intentionally, you know, like, and, and I don't think it was like super, like I made a decision to do this, but it was like this subconscious thing that I was like, I'm just going to like, just take up as much space as possible. Like an example would be like, you know, if I was sitting at my desk in my office or in like the boardroom, which was like a long conference room, like I would, you know, be in this like big reclining chair and I would basically lean all the way back and I'd put my feet up on the table with my shoes on, probably sometimes with my shoes off, like almost like in the face of the person right next to me. Like, really off-putting but like really kind of traditionally like like if you walked in that room you'd be like this person is running the room like they're kind of controlling the room and so i was always sort of in that position like you know of taking up a lot of space you know with my voice you know which is still a problem for me because i still have a very masculine voice um if, if you could hear my real voice i'd sound a lot different like if i had like if i could really you know, it would, I would be like, it would feel tiny, right? Like it would, it would be like this like sweet, chirpy, like sing-songy thing, but I can't do that uh, right now. I can't do, focus on that. But, um, but yeah, so then that's sort of part of the, the, the transition. So when I transitioned, I found myself not wanting to take up space, like, like wanting to be small um, and, and wanting to not be, you know, um, you know, not cause any, commotion and you know i used to i used to have no i used to go into restaurants with an order of food off the menu and like just because i want i just wanted to be in control i would manipulate the menu like i would tell the waiter to do x y and z and they'd say oh no the chef won't do that i'd say well go ask them anyways like just go ask them you know because i i wanted to control the things and and i didn't mind disturbing every now i don't want to disturb anything you know it's like i want to be like quiet in the background and um, and so the example of that that I use is, you know, and I had read Sheryl Sandberg's, like at least the, the passage in her book about like women not taking a seat at the table or not having a seat at the table. But part of it was that they weren't taking the seat at the table. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's bullshit, right? Because like, you know, that women should just take that seat at the table. If they want to sit at the table, they should sit at the table. What I didn't realize is that there was like all this other stuff happening you know, both like in terms of the environment that I'm in, but like, which would be like systems oppressing me and not wanting me at the table. But at the same time, like part of like who I was from a like chemical position perspective, the chemistry of Natalie was changing. And I didn't, I didn't want to sit. I, it's not that I didn't want to sit at the table. It's just, I didn't want to be inconvenient. Right. So I remember one time right after I transitioned, we were having a board meeting and, uh, like there was a limited number of seats in the room and I was like, I'm going to stand until everybody else sits and, and then I'll watch and everybody else will sit down. And then if there's a seat, then I'll see I'll sit. And of course all the seats got taken up and I was like, well, I'm just going to stand, you know, and not sit when I could have easily walked into the room next door, the conference room next door and I like got in a seat and brought it in and pulled it up at the table because there was room for me, but I didn't want to disrupt the meeting. Right. And so it was, and I, I remember leaving that going like, whoa, that was weird and different. Like, why is this happening? And I started to realize like, A, there's a lot of systems at play. There's like a lot of like what expectations of what a woman or a female identified person would be uh, supposed to do. And then at the same time, like, I was like, wow, I think the estrogen is changing me a lot. Like I think the testosterone that used to be right. through my veins was kind of, position me a certain way. And now the estrogen is changing that. 
And I think that's one of the things we don't talk about very much. Like we don't, we act as if we're all equal. Like we, that's the, you know, the, the equality conversations, everyone's created equal, created equal. Well, we're not right. And then if we're not, then you can't treat everybody equal because that's providing access to certain people that, you know, have the, the natural um, resources to be able to accomplish whatever that is where somebody else might not be able to. And, you know, estrogen and testosterone play a role in that. And I don't, I don't, I, when I talk about this, I try to be careful in the sense that like, I'm not trying to make blanket statements, like, you know, cause many women are very masculine and they have a lot of estrogen in them, but, or, and vice versa, they have testosterone in them, but they're very feminine, but there is a difference at a high level. You know, there's a, there's something happening chemically that changes our behaviors, who we are. And, you know, I am a very different leader today than I was prior to my transition. And, you know, there's a lot in that conversation, but at the core, I'm a very different person. And a lot of it's, you know, the lessons I've learned along the way and just becoming more aware of my surroundings and things like that. But a lot of it is estrogen as well. And so I lead with a more traditionally what we might call classic, like female style of leadership. And people will ask me and say, well, which one is better? And I don't think one thing is better than the other. Like, I don't think like, you know, what I used to sort of practice as toxic masculinity is a good leadership style at all. But there are some attributes that more traditionally masculine people bring to the table versus more feminine people. Like one is more nurturing and one is more like, you know, um, you know, like hunting and, you know, killing or what, you know, I'm just I'm kind of joking, but like, you know, the, there's, there's very different, um, attributes on both sides of the table. And what I believe is that, you know, the best leaders, the best companies will bring out the best of their people and get them to work together to create the best outcomes. And that just is like diversity across all the dimensions, right? So how do we work together to take advantage of what Natalie brings to the table and what, you know, Josh brings to the table? He's my co-founder, very different than me, right? Yeah. He's very unemotional. Right. right. To a fault. I'm too, I, like, I'm very emotional, probably to a fault. Like, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm too emotional because I'm, and I've been told that I'm too emotional, but I'm like, look, this business is driven off of emotion. Like, that's why we're going to be successful. So you can't take that out of the equation, but sometimes I'm too emotional, right? Like I, and I need a counterbalance to that. So, you know, how can we support the things that Natalie is naturally like not as good at, you know, like I, I used to be have no problem telling people what I needed or wanted. Like I would tell people, I want you to do this. Right. I need you to do this. You will do this. And I, I struggle to even say those words now, like to my team, I have trouble saying like, I want you to do this. Like, or I need you to do this. Like, I like sort of stumble over my words and I'm like, I almost feel like I have to like somehow get them to figure it out that they should be doing it themselves. Like almost like lead them to it and show them like, if I do it in front of them, like maybe they'll be like, Oh, they should be doing that. And so, you know, it's a very different, very, very different. Um, How long before you started noticing, you know, you, you start the transition. So how much long, how long did it take before you were like, wait a second, I see these kind of changes happening. Was two, it two, weeks. Huh? <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> oh, two weeks. Two weeks. Something said 10 minutes. I was like, that's fast. Oh, yeah. right, so two weeks. Yeah. So pretty, think, pretty immediate. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the trans community about like, you know, why and when and how, and, you know, we're yeah. trying, we're all part of like this big sort of experiment of trying to figure out, you know, what's, what is, I mean, there's not a lot of history to this stuff. So, 
Um, and the medicine is not very um, advanced, relatively speaking. Um, but we are saving people's lives. That is important. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, but I, I started my, I figured out I was transgender in fall of 2015. Like I figured it out. I came out as transgender to the world in uh, like May of 2016. Um, but I started hormones on my birthday, February 28th of 2016. So just a few months before I came out publicly. Okay. So I discovered it in like fall of 2015 went through my sort of like, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this? Like you know, right. psychologically, like, you know, trying to figure out like, and then started hormones on February 28th on my birthday, which was a really cool, like rebirth for right. me. And two weeks later, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a whole <laughs> new world. Like I remember, and I know we're probably almost the time, but I was dry. The first indicator that my life, that something was different. I was driving, it was night. I was driving on this like back country road going home. I looked over to my left, the sun was sort of setting uh, and there was a deer out in the field. And I remember looking at that deer and going like, oh my God, like I have this like connection to this deer. Like I felt like, I was like, I felt like we are both of this earth. Like we are both alive. And like, you know, it was the weirdest, like it was like this connection moment that I just was like with an animal way in the distance. And I was like, I snapped too. I was like, whoa, what was that? And then I, I, I didn't know what it was at the moment, but then I started to realize, and, and I thought about it. I was like, wow, that's weird because I used to always think of deer as like a deer as like a nuisance, like, like potentially mm. like a hazard in the road or like, like an, a means to an end, like, a, like, like I would kill that deer to eat it. Like that's how I used to think of this. So that was like, that was a weird moment for me. And then then there was a couple of things later that I, I just realized. I mean, I just remember the first time I, you know, uh, I, this is sort of more personal story, but I, 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 my, my sexual orientation started to change. And I remember sort of like this moment where I just remember looking at a man and just being like, wow, like I'm sort of right to do this person. Right. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation, but like, it was, it was, that was like two weeks after I started wow. the hormones and it was like, it was actually, it wasn't switching my sexual orientation, yeah. it was unlocking who I really was. Yeah. You know, I used to be obsessed with women. turns out I just wanted to be a woman. Um, and I had repressed my attraction to men because it was like one layer lower in the priority of like my gender. Right. Um, so anyways, that, that was probably a little bit too much for the end of the podcast, but I, I think it's no, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I am so thankful that you are willing to be so open about the entire experience and talk about the things that a lot of people are not comfortable talking about because you really are going to be able to help uh, a lot of people as they transition family members that are trying to find out more. And you know, most of our audience, like I shared, is employers that are really trying to get. DEI and be right. And they don't have access to people like you who can really answer these maybe harder questions and give the insight that very few people really are open about. So thank you. I very much appreciate it. I do hope you'll come back because I think there's a couple of things we haven't um, really talked about that everyone are very eager to, to discuss. Yeah, I'd love to love to come back. Um, and I just want to thank you, you know, Angela, for having me today. 
um, and the rest of the team at This Way Global. And, um, you know, and for everybody in the audience today, thank you for showing up. Thank you for, you know, participating. And um, if you want to continue the conversation, you can find me on social media, on LinkedIn at Natalie J. Egan. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Natalie J. Egan. So it's my first name, Natalie, my middle initial J, and then my last name, Egan, which is E-G-A-N. Uh, on Instagram. And then also you can find out more about my company, Translator, uh, at translator.company. So www.translator.company. It's C-O-M-P-A-N-Y. So the whole word is spelled out, translator.company. And, you know, love to, to get your feedback on our product as well. So thank you so much, Angela, for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Natalie.